And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stasekel, joined as always by Paul Tenorio. We are coming to you this time around from Kingston, Jamaica, where the U.S. men's national team recently couple hours ago now tied jamaica one-to-one at independence park tim wea scored the goal just a few miles down the road from where his mother grew up in kingston uh his goal was canceled out by one of the goals of the octagonal maybe the goal of the octagonal so far i think i would put it ahead of deaths against costa rica uh by michael antonio who had an absolute rocket in the 22nd minute past zach stefan after that point match was pretty ugly not a ton of chances for either team. Jamaica had one really good look early in the second half through Bobby Reed that he should have scored. Uh, they also had a goal called back late on a corner kick that Damian Lowe headed in. He was called for a foul on Walker Zimmerman. So that goal was waved off. Other than that, not a ton to write home about, man. Uh, but the U.S. 1-1 draw on the road closes the window with four points through two games. Ends the night second in CONCACAF qualifying behind Canada we will get to later don't you worry <laughs> uh what a night for them uh, so yeah but we'll start with the u.s as we always do paul big picture thoughts on this result here in kingston on tuesday night yeah i would agree that it was kind of a meh night and a meh result like not a lot to take away from it you could be disappointed i guess that they didn't get three points especially coming off of the win over mexico but the energy of the game was completely different. The energy of the app, the atmosphere was completely different. And, you know, the, they were disappointing in the sense of not carrying over that momentum, but it would have been really hard to do that. I think just because of the completely new set of circumstances. So I get it. Not ideal result. Also not the worst result in the world. Um, and so you move on and, and, I think really when you pull back and you look at it, the bigger takeaway is that, yes, like the one thing that I still want to see from this group of younger players that are kind of coming together as a team is can you put together two back-to-back strong performances? And I don't think that's happened yet. Yeah, it hasn't, right? If you go all the way back to the beginning of qualifying, the first the first two games, really the whole September window, wasn't really great performances. <laughs> October, you had a good one against Jamaica good one against Costa Rica, but a bad one against Panama broken up there in between. Obviously a good one against Mexico and then kind of a meh one, as you said tonight. Um, I think my kind of big takeaway on the performance in Jamaica was that it was a lackluster performance. It was a frustrating performance. Jamaica made it hard, but the U.S. didn't really help themselves out in many ways, but the result is fine. You know, it leaves you in a good position. They have 1.875 points per game. 
Historically, that is way more than enough to finish in the top three in CONCACAF. This cycle is shaping out a little bit weird. We'll talk about that later on. Um, so, you know, these games are still important. They're not, you know, qualified yet, but they are in good position. Um, for me, Paul, you know, this kind of goes back to the, to the old idea of this U.S. team is really good at pressing, really good without the ball. Um, sometimes they struggle when the other teams seed possession or maybe seed the midfield and let them have it um, or don't open themselves up to transition opportunities. I thought tonight, you know, first 10 minutes, both teams feeling each other out. Not really. It's unhappened. The U.S. started to kind of turn it up a little bit around the 10th. I, th- I think I actually turned to you in the stadium and I was like, this pressure is starting to work. And then 30 seconds later, they scored. Um, it's one of the few smart things I say in, in the stadium. So I gotta, I gotta toot my own horn when that happens. It's rare. So I gotta, I gotta celebrate it. Um, then for the next 10 minutes, they were in firm control. They almost scored again in the 16th minute. Tim Weah had a nice cross that Ricardo Pepe, he got on the end of shot, got blocked, fell to Aronson. His shot got saved by Andre Blake. If they score there, I think they're cruising. You know, this is a win. Jamaica was awful for the first 20 minutes. They were all over the place. Um, but then Antonio scores that goal out of nowhere, out of nowhere. Like that thing was a rocket and it completely changed the game. You know, it's the old cliche goals change games, but this one did Jamaica got into it more mentally. They started playing better, started staying more organized and they uglied this thing up like big time in terms of style and in terms of how they played. And I thought for the most part, the U S did a pretty good job of handling it defensively, but they never really got in rhythm on the ball. Uh, midfield struggled. Um, and so they weren't really able to, they weren't really able to take advantage of, of an opportunity to get three points and really put themselves in a really strong position heading into the final two windows qualifying. Yeah. I mean, that goal was insane. I, we had a great angle on it because we were diagonally directly between, we were behind Antonio was in the middle and we were on the direct line, line, essentially, of our, our viewpoint, Antonio, the corner where the ball ended up, or the part of the goal the ball ended up. So when he cut inside, I'll kind of just walk through what I saw in the goal. The first thing I noticed as it happened was Walker Zimmerman went up and won the header and then immediately backpedaled off of Antonio. And he didn't realize that the ball was essentially recycling right there. And then Antonio gets the ball and turns, and Tyler Adams takes a very aggressive angle and he says after the game he was trying to cut off the pass to the outside because he knew he felt he had help on the inside and he wasn't expecting Antonio to rip a shot from 35 yards um so because he took that aggressive line Antonio (laughs) cut inside and the way he hit the shot it came very quickly he cut inside it's not like he like looked up and played another touch in front of himself and teed it up he cut inside and just kind of ripped it and like the 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 sound that it made. The sound was the ridiculous. Movement it was that ridiculous. I could see on the ball from where my vantage point was. It was insane. Like there, like I've never heard a shot, partly because there was no one in the stadium, but I never heard a, a shot sound like that. Like it, it made a noise, and we were up high in the far corner. It made a noise that you could you could hear it. Like we were like a hundred yards away, probably. Yeah, you could hear yeah. that it was like a crazy hard shot, and I just felt like. I understand why for the next 25 minutes, the U.S. struggled to find the game, that the game flipped on its head. That's the type of goal that gets you excited if yeah. you're playing for Jamaica. Well, yeah, I, and I understand why Jamaica got a boost from it. Yeah. How could it not? Yeah, for sure. And, yeah. The, and the U.S. couldn't really bounce back from that. And I thought, Sam, 
I thought that they were going to come out of halftime the U.S. and and regain the game, but they couldn't. And I think there were a couple of different reasons for that. The pitch was getting worse. You couldn't really play soccer on it. The game turned very vertical is not the right word. Direct long balls back and forth. It was ugly. Yeah, Berhalter called it a game of of second balls, and that's really what it was. And the U.S. was losing most of those second balls. Um, and Tyler Adams sort of spoke about that at the end of the night, and he was like, "Yeah, you know." On Antonio, they were going so direct to him that I was fronting him. So Adams was basically playing the front side and Zimmerman, mostly Zimmerman, sometimes Richards was behind Antonio and trying to win the ball. And so they were double teaming him. And so Zimmerman and Richards did a tremendous job on those aerial duels. They won damn near all of them, it felt like. Uh, but the problem was Adams was right there with him. So he wasn't in play for the second ball. Then McKenney is out, right? He's suspended for this match. He's normally your guy that's all over the place, kind of an energizing bunny in there, great at recoveries, excellent presser. He's awesome at winning second balls. He's not in there. Gianluca Busio is a very different type of player. That is very much not his game. Yunus Musa was in there as well. So you're already down a man because Adams is, is shading towards Antonio all the time. Um, but then you lose McKenney, uh, and the U.S. wasn't winning any of those second balls. And, th- and that really made a difference. When they did get on the ball too, the midfield wasn't very good. They were off all night. You know, and it wasn't, the margins weren't huge, but there were a few plays that I remember in the first half where it's just like a few inches here or there, right? And the pass is a little bit behind a guy, or it's a little bit too far in front of a guy, or the trap isn't quite good enough, and it's just not precise, and it messes up the next step in the build, and that was the case for pretty much the entire game. So when those things are happening together, it makes it difficult to be cohesive and coherent. You know, they weren't harmonious. Um, I do want to go back to the sound real quick because it was incredible. It's like that goal is world class, but I'm going to remember that sound like forever. <laughs> like It was like, I don't know. Tell me if I'm off here, but it's sort of like getting punched in the gut, like amplified by a million, like that sound. Like it was just like a boom, like deeper than a pop more explosive than a thud. Yeah, and, I mean, it was like a thundering thud US. is what it kind of felt like, is what it sounded like. It, it was very distinctive when it happened, and I was like, it, holy crap. I mean, I was still kind of lingering on the sound in my mind as the ball went into the net. Like, as soon as he hit it, I knew it was a goal, because I, I could see the trajectory of the ball, and you heard the sound, so you knew how hard he had hit it. I, I and like I got in a bajillion Twitter debates over people telling me Matt Turner would have saved it. What I what I find funny <laughs> Paul is Paul was fired up. He was fired up. Nobody that. that was in the stadium, nobody that was in the stadium thought that Matt Turner would have saved it. The only people who thought he would have saved it are the people who were out of the stadium watching on TV. And when I saw the replays, I understand why. The TV angle didn't show all of like how far like it just didn't give an accurate representation of what Zach Steffen had to do to try to save that the the manner in which he hit it the the pace and the power with which he hit it and the trajectory of the ball it the three different angles combined the slow motion it kind of took away I thought from the quality of that shot the way he hit the shot the speed at which he hit it and with the power and the movement to me no shot for anybody um, unless Unless he had happened to be standing over there, basically. I mean, I think even if Stefan, maybe you could say he could have positioned himself better. I, I don't think he would have saved it, even if he had. Like, that thing was moving. Kind of a cool note, by the way, from our editor, Brooks Peck. He he notes that Antonio had never scored a goal, had, has never scored a goal, I guess, for West Ham from outside the box. And I think he said he's the only player with 50 goals in the Premier League 
in Premier League history to have none of those goals come outside the box. So, like, just to show you how improbable this was, this isn't some guy that's banging him in from 25 on the regular. This was out of nowhere and unheard of for Antonio in his life. Um, so anyway, just kind of a drastic thing. I do want to spend a little bit more time on the midfield though, Paul. I sort of gave my two cents about it. Did you, did you have any thoughts on the performance there without McKenney? Um, Musa was dealing with strep throat, apparently, according to Burhalter after the match, which is why he came off in the second half. I know I was a little bit confused about that sub at the time. So that, that explains it for sure. But yeah, thoughts on the midfield? I mean, I turned to you at one point and said that I was surprised that Musa wasn't carrying the ball as much as he normally does. He felt like there were moments where he turned and had space and then still just took a touch and passed it. And it probably was because he wasn't feeling great and he did, and he was trying to minimize his physical output. Um, I thought John Luca Busio. Some of it was probably the field though, too. 100% as well. Yes. The field quality was really poor. It would have been tough to carry the ball forward, especially at speed without risking losing it. And actually early in the game, he lost it a couple of times and that might have, you know, prompted him to be like, okay, this is not something I can do as often in this game on this field. What was interesting to me is I feel like, you know, we talked about this before the game. I think Sam, like this was a big moment for John Luca Busio with Weston McKinney out. It's kind of a wide open competition in that midfield for that third spot and for the depth of that third spot, especially. And I just felt like Buzio didn't really do enough for me in this game. He he certainly didn't find the physical sides of it that are needed in CONCACAF. And, you know, he wasn't that great on the ball either. He was kind of invisible. I just felt like it was a disappointing performance overall. For Buzio, I did see somebody tweet, you know, I think, you know, Matt Doyle wrote something similar. You know, these are professional soccer players. And we, we have to call it as we see it. It was his first start in a World Cup qualifier. He's 19 years old. I mean, it doesn't mean old. this is... doesn't mean he can't he's not be better. Get better. But I thought it was a missed opportunity for Busio to seize that role to be kind of what Sebastian Legette has been for the U.S. team in that in that spot. Yeah, and he'll have more opportunities if he keeps playing like he has with Venezia. But you mentioned our buddy Matt Doyle to, to quote a stat that he put out there. As of the 60th minute of tonight's match, Busio hadn't recorded a single tackle, interception foul, or gotten into a single duel. And this wasn't like some super clean game that was like light and not like a lot of tackles, not a lot of 50-50s. No, like we said off the top, it was a game of second balls. Like there were a ton of those opportunities. And to be a central midfielder and to not record a single one of those, like that's, it's worrisome. And, And like, it's not good enough. Like, you need to be more involved than that. And I think Busio knows that, and I think he'll get better. But this game was, he wasn't particularly well suited for it. And I think the U.S. really missed McKenney tonight because this is the style of game that he kind of can thrive in. Um, and I think he would have added a measure of intensity for sure. But, you know, he would have helped with those second balls, would have added a little bit of bite, would have given more of a physical presence in the midfield. And, I, and I, this was a game that needed that. Um, so, you know, a couple of other notes that I wanted to get to Tim Weah, fantastic goal, fantastic goal. Um, he had a little move, you know, quick, quick little one, two with Pepe. And then he basically destroyed Bobby Reed in the box before a really nice finish, by the way. Um, I think, feel like that got a little lost how nice of a finish it was past Andre Blank from a tight angle. Um, really good goal, but I thought he was kind of, you know, he kind of went in and out the rest of the game. We didn't see a lot from him the rest of the night. Um, most of the U.S.'s moves forward were more through Aronson and his side after the goal. 
Um, but I mean, you can't knock, you can't knock that strike, man. That was a huge play. Um, and you know, I think a really positive window for Wea coming off a of man of the match performance against Mexico. For sure. And I think after the break, when we kind of pull back and look at this cycle so far for the U.S., we can get into this a little bit more. But, you know, this has been partly about learning who you can count on and who can step into these moments and be a starter when someone's out or be a a super sub that you can count on or, um, you know, who are the guys that will step into those moments and grab a hold of them. And I think Tim Weah has shown he can do that, that he can be that guy he can start for you. And he's put himself firmly in the mix to be a starter, but he also showed that he could be a, a really effective super sub um, against Jamaica last month. When he came on as a sub, he showed that. So I think he's been one of the winners of the last two, two months. And, you know, it's a really, really good thing for the U S because we have learned again during this cycle that you, you can't count on having everyone healthy and available. We, that has been the one consistency of world cup qualifying for the U S national team. Absolutely. And I think that will remain consistent as we move forward into the final two windows of qualifying. Um, a couple other, I mean, I, I do want to highlight Zimmerman and Richards. I thought they were quite good. Um, Zimmerman got beat on the goal and, or the disallowed goal, I should say. Um, and we should probably spend some time there too, Paul. You know, we didn't see, we don't have the benefit of the replay in the stadium. There weren't any monitors for us to look at down here in Kingston, but watching it, on Twitter and watching the replay after the match, Zimmerman basically said as much. Yeah, maybe he was impeded, but that's not a play that's called a foul hardly ever. And the U.S. got away with one there. They got a little bit lucky on that. You could say that they got unlucky with the Antonio goal, but they got a little bit lucky on that one, and they probably should have lost this game. <laughs> that goal probably should have counted. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what what's interesting to me too is like you you don't count on those breaks happening on the road. You know, maybe they happen at home, but in CONCACAF typically you don't count on them happening um on the road and I think that moment like I had a feeling that Jamaica was going to score. Like it was building into the final minutes of the game, Jamaica was pushing. Like Sam, you kind of called it. You were like Jamaica needs a win. Like they've got to start to like go. And they did. They started to push and push and push. And they got a couple set pieces in a row. And it was like if you could feel it coming. And there was like this huge moment. And what was confusing to me is I saw him go up for the header. I realized it was going to be a goal. And then I heard a whistle. And I was like, wait, what? I don't think the ball was fully in the net yet. So it was like it was like he called the foul early on. So I was like, he must have been a foul. But I didn't see anything. It was very confusing. And yes, it was a huge break for the U.S. national team. Uh, really unfortunate for Jamaica because really when you look at that opportunity, you look at the the one earlier in the second half that they had from inside of three yards and managed to not put it in the net. I don't know how Bobby Reed missed that. Bobby man. Reed that somehow got it over the top of the goal. You know, that's – I would say they deserved the three points based on the opportunities, if not the the play – but certainly based on the opportunities and, and yeah, the U S caught a break and it, it makes it a much more successful window for them. Any other players that you wanted to highlight? I didn't really highlight Zimmerman and Richards. 
Um, but they deserve mention. I thought they were both good tonight. I thought Yedlin was okay. Anthony yeah, Robinson Yedlin was good. Robinson struggled again. It's been a rough window for Anthony Robinson. I think there are still questions. I mean, you come out of this window and you think to yourself, yeah, there are still questions with this group. We're learning every single time, every single window, and it's up and down, up and down. Anthony Robinson really, really good at times in September. You know, really good at times in October. Really down this month. You know, Yunus Musa, incredible against Mexico. Not so great tonight. Now we learned he had strep throat. I mean, but part of it is like the the way that these young players are going to go sometimes. It's going to be volatile. It's going to be up and down. And you're, you're trying to figure out who are the guy again, who are the guys you can count on? And we're getting closer to that. Like, I have a pretty good feeling of who I would say like the 25 best players are in this group. If I could put a roster together again in an ideal world, if everyone was available, but you know, I still think there are pretty big questions about what the best starting 11 is for this team. Yeah, I agree with that. We'll get more into those big picture topics and kind of look back over these first eight games of qualifying here in the next segment. Um, I think just putting a bow on this Jamaica match real quick performance was lackluster. The players were frustrated by it. They felt like three points were probably there for the taking for them in this match and they didn't go out and play well enough to get them. Um, that being said, the result itself perfectly acceptable for this stage of qualifying, even though the U S doesn't end the night in first, they are a point behind Canada. Um, so we'll talk more big picture stuff that we've learned about the U S M and T through the first two, three windows, excuse me, three windows of qualifying first eight matches of qualifying after the break. Stay with us. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily with 24 seven U S based live customer service from discover Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. Sam Stasekul and Paul Tenorio coming to you from Kingston, Jamaica after the USMNT's 1-1 draw against the Reggae Boys down here on the island on Tuesday night. Paul, we are now eight games into the CONCACAF octagonal. We have six games to go. We are past the halfway point. U.S. is in a good position. They're in second place with 15 points, one behind leaders, Canada. Who would have thought? <laughs> the Canadians just up there killing it. Um, but we have, we have, you sort of referenced it. We have a better idea about the USMNT than we did at this time two and a half months ago. But we don't have a perfect idea of what this group is all about. And that's for a variety of reasons. But a big one is something that you tabulated and I think put in your column earlier tonight. Yeah, I was I was just curious because I think what people we talked about, I was trying to figure out and calibrate the expectations of this team in qualifying versus the realities and balancing this belief of this golden generation of U.S. men's national team. And I was like, yeah, that's true. But how much has the golden generation been playing? So I took the five biggest stars on this U.S. team, Christian Pulisic, Gio Reyna, Serginho Dest, Weston McKinney, and Tyler Adams, and I said, okay, there's 3,600 possible minutes played over eight games in this 
um, cycle so far. How many minutes have those five contributed? And it's just 1,572. Significantly less than half. And of those, 42, 42%, almost half, come from only Tyler Adams. He's the only player of that group of five who's appeared in more than four of the games in this, of the eight games. In fact, he's appeared in all eight. But none of the other four have appeared in more than four games. Christian Pulisic has four, and I believe Weston and Gio and Serginio. I think Serginio also, I think, might have four, and then Weston and Gio fewer. So, yes, there's there should be these huge expectations around these players, and can they lead the U.S. forward? And it's super exciting. It's never happened before, but they have to be on the field. Gio Reyna's played 90 minutes so far. Weston McKinney has missed games in every single window so far. Serginio Dest has missed games in two out of the three windows. So it's, they're not always on the field. And and we're still learning about who are the players that can step up. And again, there are some good stories that have happened. Tim Weah, Brendan Aronson, Ricardo Pepe. These are all guys we weren't really talking about beforehand. Walker Zimmerman, Miles Robinson, both guys who have... Miles Robinson in the Gold Cup, Walker Zimmerman last window, grabbed a hold of their jobs. Eunice Musa, 18 years old, fantastic against Mexico, the best player on the field for the U.S. So it's led to these moments where these other players have stepped up. But when we talk about the expectations that exist around this U.S. team, we should also understand that it's built around the reputations of essentially those five players, the clubs they're playing for, the heights that they've reached. And the U.S. hasn't really been leaning or depending on them that much because they haven't been available that often. That isn't a bad thing, like you mentioned, because it has led some other guys to emerge and they have more data points, to use one of Berhalter's kind of phrases, on on a bunch of different guys. And that's a good thing. And some guys have stepped up in a positive way, like you said. But it, it just makes it hard, and and I feel like uh, one of our one of our fellow reporters, Brian Strauss, was asking about this the other day. But we don't really know what this best eleven it even looks like for the U.S. And in one way, that's good because of the flexibility. But in the other way, that this group has never really had much time together. Um, it's a little bit concerning is the wrong word, but um, I guess maybe a little disappointing. You would have hoped to have a little bit more at this point in qualifying from that group together. And it's not anyone's fault or anything like that. I'm not trying to throw stones or cast aspersions or blame on anyone. But it it is a little bit disappointing. And it it sort of makes you look ahead, maybe towards Qatar. Um, And, you know, maybe not quite feel quite as good as you would if this team was all playing together and getting reps together and ironing out. Um, some of the, the rust and the kinks that are going to need to be ironed out when it's a new group. So I guess we'll see. But I think overall, I've said it a few times on the show already, they're in a good place in qualifying, right? And they've had a good six months, man. Really good six months. Yeah, I mean, that was the crux of my column. When you go back and look at it, if I had said in June to U.S. men's national team fans, okay, you're going to win two trophies out of two, you're going to beat Mexico three straight times, and you're going to be one point out of first place halfway through, a little more than halfway through qualifying, would you have taken it? I think the answer is yes. Would it have been a little nicer to be in first place instead of in second place behind Canada? Yeah, I think so. But I, I think the U.S. is in pretty a pretty good spot. I think they've had a pretty 
strong six months. They've they've stepped up in the bigger games when they've needed to. They've gotten the results. Um, you know, I I remember when I first started covering MLS again consistently back in 2015 in Orlando, and it was the first time I had heard a manager talk about getting. You know, if you average two points a game in a league, you're going to end up pretty darn close to the top of the table. Certainly, you're going to be a playoff team in MLS. And Greg Berhalter brought up the kind of two points per game mark again um, tonight. And he was saying that in two of the three windows, they've averaged at least two points per game. That first window was where they failed to do so, but it's the only window where they have. So it kind of shows, you know, they're getting the results they need to get and they're they're in a good spot. And I think we have seen some guys emerge. We have seen some good things. I think we've seen Burhalter kind of learn and progress as well through all of this. And I think that's an important part of this. Um, I feel like he has more of a defined system now than he did at the beginning. You know, we, we entered qualifying and it was like, yeah, he's going to play the 4-3-3 most of the time. But he's got the 3-5-2 in his bag or a three-man back line in his bag. And we saw him roll, them out, roll that out in, in Honduras to disastrous effect for 45 minutes before a halftime slew of changes corrected that in a really emphatic way in the second half of that match. But I feel like the, the best way for this team to play is a lot more defined now. And I think that's a real positive that I have from the first few windows. Um, I don't know if you feel that same way, Paul, but I still largely feel, I keep going back to this, but the show we did after the Panama match a month ago, you know, I think we both said it, but I, I kept hammering home, hey, this is like the 20th, 25th best national team in the world. And I still feel that way. There are some exciting young players. There are some exciting young prospects. I'm super high on a few of them. Eunice Musa, I'm like falling in love with that guy. I think he's great. Um, but there's still a long way to go for this team. Right, and and they can compete with some great squads, but you know if they go up against some top top teams, they're probably going to have some trouble here and there too. And I think it's important to kind of view things through that lens. And nothing I've really seen over the first few windows has changed my opinion in that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, also it's a super young team, like a really really young team. You and I were talking as we were watching. We were with Dani Nora and, and Michele Giannone watching the end of the Mexico-Canada game here um, in Jamaica. And we were talking even about if you look at Canada, they've got some experienced players in that squad that mix well with their young players. And the U.S. has it but doesn't really have it, not to the same level, not kind of in through through the core of the team. and that, Certainly not the international experience yeah, either. And that makes a difference. And and really, I think it, it decreases the kind of level of volatility in a team and decreases kind of the learning curve. And so when we talk about who can this team compete with, I actually think that youth is helpful when you get to the World Cup. There's this kind of – I think sometimes there's this belief like – you don't know that you shouldn't be there, right? Like you don't like I always use Landon Donovan and Demarcus Beasley as an example. That sometimes you just you don't know you're supposed to be afraid. You don't know you're supposed to be nervous, and you just go for it. And I think, you know, I loved the quote that John Herdman had about Mexico after the Azteca and ahead of this game. He was like, "We're just not scared of you anymore. We're not scared of Mexico anymore." Well, the, the Canadian players, the young ones, they don't know that they're supposed to be scared or intimidated. You know, that's the sometimes you just kind of. You don't. You haven't had the experience, the downs, the negatives that kind of make you jaded. And I think 
the problem with the U.S. team is it's so young that there's not like a balance to that. It's like they go in kind of with a naivety on every game <laughs> in every game. I do think I do think they're learning a little bit. And I actually think tonight was kind of a more mature performance. And yeah, I thought well, Mexico that, like, was extremely mature. That's what I'm saying is like and then and then you get to the you get to Panama, you get to Honduras, you get to Panama, you get to El Salvador. You you go on these road games and then Tim Weah said it best. It was like his first game on the road was last month. You know, even though the team's first game was 2 months ago in El Salvador and then again in Honduras. Tim Weah's first qualifier in the road was last month against Panama. They lost, and he played poorly. They couldn't find the game. And he said, Yo, hey, today we got a point. It was an improvement for me on, on a different road game, similar challenges, different road game, better result. Like for him, he was like, I, we grew a little bit here. You know, it's like the, the, these, these processes, these lessons are all staggered for the different players as they go through them at different times. And, and, it's going to be a while before I think, Sam, that we talk about this team as, you know, truly competitive with the better te- national teams in the world if they get there, if they get there at all. I think the hope is 2026. That's the hope when you ha- when this whole group is in their prime. Took the words right out of my mouth. Um, and, <laughs> you know, that's probably frustrating for people to hear in the here and now. Right, but it is the reality, especially when you look at the youth of the team. I mean, I'm like, not saying you can't make a run in 2022. Again, I think these tournaments are set up for younger players, but you have to understand that. I mean, you should. Hope it would. It would be. It would be a little lucky, right? Everyone would. Everyone should be hoping, no matter what, that your team is better when your players are in their prime than they are when they're in their early 20s and teens. <laughs> I guess you're really out on a. Or else you're regressing. You're regressing. It's a bad, <laughs> really bad sign. <laughs> yeah. That would be a really bad sign. Um, yeah. So anyway, I think overall, big picture, I think U.S. is in a solid spot. I think they're more secure in how they handle these matches emotionally and how they handle these matches tactically. I think they are more secure in their depth, and that's something we heard from a few of the guys after the match tonight. Um, and I think they know more about themselves in a good way. I think they're also not quite as far along in some ways that we all hoped they might be, but that's not really anyone's fault. Availability things are availability things. No one can control injuries. So that is what it is. Um, I think on the whole though, solid, solid position heading into what is going to be maybe the most anticipated match of my entire life, Paul Tenorio. USMNT at Canada. Hopefully in, I don't know, Medicine Hat, Thunder Bay, perhaps. Maybe we could go to Nova Scotia, get a little skosh with it. You've been working on your Canadian geography in case you need to get a passport. That's what's been happening. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) We'll talk more about Canada in the next segment. Talk a little bit more. Whip around CONCACAF. Um, But yeah, remarkable result for Canada earlier tonight. We'll talk about more next. Stay with us. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder, our last episode of The Window, our last segment of The Window, Kingston, Jamaica. We are, I don't, Paul, I don't even know when you're going to be back on this show. I was going to say, this is my last episode for a while, definitely of 2021. Paul's going on paternity leave. Well deserved. His babies need him. He's been, he's been way too neglectful. No, I'm kidding. That's a joke. Um, but yes, he is taking a well deserved rest after we get home from Jamaica. So I will be making do in other ways on this podcast. We'll figure it out. We'll all figure it out together. Before that happens, though, we have one more segment to go, Paul. And we are going to spend that segment talking about Canada, talking about CONCACAF. But let's let's just start with the headline of the night, man. Canada beating Mexico 2-1 to one in the snow, in the freezing cold, in Edmonton. They're atop the standings. 16 points, one point ahead of the U.S., two points ahead of Mexico and Panama, who are tied for third on points. Mexico is ahead of them on goal differential. Um, and then Costa Rica in fifth with nine Jamaica, six with seven. El Salvador, seventh with six points. Honduras bringing up the rear with three points. Um, this is sort of turning into a four-horse race. Your Ticos aren't completely out of it yet. They they got a big game coming against Panama, um, so they could change things pretty dramatically. But right now, there's a very clear top four, and Canada is at the top of the heap after a remarkable, legendary win in Edmonton for that country and that program tonight. Yeah, Orlando City legend Kyle Lahren. Um, you know, probably the Vancouver Whitecaps legend Sam Atakugbe with one of the coolest cold goal celebrations maybe of all time. What a cool performance. What a fun team. I really enjoy watching Canada play. I enjoy watching them in press conferences. They have like a it's like a swagger that's not a swagger. It's like a fun swagger. It's not like a cocky swagger. It's like we're here to have fun and also It's a beat polite you. swagger. It's a polite it's swagger. It's not even a play. It's like we are having a blast and we're also better than you. Like, that's what it yeah. is, you know? And I really like that. I also think John Herdman's like the perfect coach for them. He's a, he's like weird and quirky 
and you know says things he shouldn't say and does things he shouldn't do on the sideline and like and spies on opponents spies all the time on opponents has you know colors his airpod skin color because people make fun of him for having it in his ear during a game like coloring it skin color is going to make it better it's like one of my favorite things he's ever done was coloring that <laughs> airpod um there's just like everything to love about the canadian team um i've been a fan of kyle laren since i covered him in orlando as a player so to watch to see him score two goals tonight doesn't surprise me but obviously alfonso davies is so much fun to watch jonathan david tejan buchanan i mean just a really really fun team and it sets up a massive window Sam, I mean, like tonight's performance. Sorry, before we get to that, like tonight's performance was like typical Canada, like not afraid. Daniel Henry, right off the bat, just like crushing <laughs> Chucky Lozano. T- tell the story of what you saw Daniel Henry do. All right, I- I'm gonna have to bleep myself out here. So when I'm watching the broadcast here, I was trying to write my column, and I look up, and that foul happens right away. And like, so the- back up a little bit. First minute of the game, Daniel Henry absolutely crushes. Lines up Lozano. I mean, I'm sorry. He does. He's smart about it. He doesn't raise his arm, but he leans his shoulder into Lozano's head. And for people who don't know, Chugi Lozano is coming off a major head injury that he suffered in the Gold Cup. So for me, I thought he lined him up. I thought he lined him up. And I was like, I made an audible noise when the collision happened because it was brutal. It was brutal. And then they like show Chucky on the ground and they're showing like people yelling at Daniel Henry and then they show Chucky on the ground again. And then they come back to Daniel Henry and they zoom in on his face and he's like backing up towards his goal and his eyes are all big and he just goes, let's effing go. (laughs) That's what he said. I can read lips. That's what he said. And I just started cracking up because I was like, this guy is ready to roll. He got subbed out 11 minutes later. (laughs) He was a little too ready to roll. He was a little too ready to roll. (laughs) But it was, like, so perfect. Like, they were so fired up for the game. And, yeah, and Mexico is kind of like this mess, this this beautiful mess. They're capable of so much, but they are struggling to put it together. Memo Ochoa, terrible on the first goal for Canada. But what a fun game that was to watch. The atmosphere was awesome. It was in Edmonton. It was 12 degrees. There was snow everywhere. It was incredible. Yeah, really cool environment for Canada. And it sort of feels like a turning point for them as a soccer country. You know, I kept saying this. I think I said it on the show maybe at one point. But I kept saying that this felt like 2001 World Cup qualifier USA-Mexico in Columbus. Right? The original Dos Acero, the original USA-Mexico in Columbus. This sort of felt like that equivalent for Canada. And I'm interested and excited to see where they take it. Because a good Canada, I think, is good for the USMNT in the long run, having that extra challenger to push you and really, really press you. And and it's a closer challenger in some ways than Mexico. You share a league with Canada, right? All of a lot of these players that are starring came through MLS. Some of them, a lot of them came through MLS academies. I was just about to say that. I mean, we have to acknowledge that we, you know, I like to, to hold MLS accountable on this show a lot and, and really, I've covered the Academy. It was like what my main beat was covering soccer when I was at the Washington Post back in 2007 when I first started because, you know, Steve Goff obviously is at the Post. And so I kind of was looking for my my niche in soccer. And, you know, the Academy was launching. And here we are 14 years later. We've kind of cycled through now. Our first real generation of homegrown players are now kind of in this young portion of their careers. And look at the players who came out of the, that first generation of academy players who started at 10, 11, 12 years old. Tyler Adams, Weston McKenney, Kyle, well, Kyle Aaron 
is not from that academy, but not came MLS through MLS. Academy. Was not an M- I mean, not everyone's an MLS academy, but kind of an, a re-emphasis on youth. Alfonso Davies. Tejon, he was an MLS Tejon academy. Buchanan. Um, you know, the overhaul of the academy system. John, Jonathan Osorio. Richie yeah. Larea. I mean, yeah. we, we can go over to the U.S. team and really start to hammer down that list of, of Brendan Aronson and all the guys that have come through. But it, it's, it is, if you look at MLS, the impact that it's had on this qualification cycle is pretty significant. I mean, not just with guys like Laren and Buchanan and Davies or in the U.S. side, Tyler Adams and Brendan Aronson and Ricardo Pepe and Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman and Zach Steffen and Matt Turner. I mean, you go down the list, but you can go over to the other teams in CONCACAF and and you can look at the influence there that has helped to elevate some of those teams as well, even even teams that are struggling. Or you know, look at Panama. Um, they've got guys on that team that have that have had careers, long careers in Major League Soccer. So we should acknowledge that, but um, – I don't know, man. I, there's something about this this younger generation of players that's coming up out of Canada that just gets me excited because I see – you can see where they're coming from. You can see there are certain clubs in certain areas that have done a good job of development. Brampton and Toronto and Vancouver academies are starting to kind of work more towards something. And that's exciting because, it, yeah, like to your point, it, it stirs growth everywhere in the league. You have to compete. Everywhere in the region. Everywhere in the region, not just the league. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's a cool thing. It's an easy team to root for. They have a lot of infectious personalities. Alfonso Davies, incredible smile. Who doesn't love that guy? You know? Um, incredible player, too. Mexico, meanwhile, is in some... I mean, they're not really in trouble. They are they have 14 points. They're in a good position, but they lost both games this window at the U.S., at Mexico. Probably the two hardest games they'll have in qualifying. So it's... Sorry, yeah, they didn't lose at Mexico, at Canada. That would be hard. Um, but Tata Martino under some real pressure now. Uh, it's an older squad. They probably need some fresh faces next time around um, for the January window. Um, I don't know what they do with Tata. He he was getting asked in the press conference tonight if he would resign. That's where they're at. You know who they need? They need Chicharito. Piojo? They need Chicharito. You think you got to bring him in, get some leadership. Some politics into the squad. play there. Politics aside, the World Cup's on the line. Sam, let's just talk about how fun January is going to be based on the results. Oh, I mean, my God, Costa Rica, Panama, the first game of the January window, massive game for both of those countries. Costa Rica to stay in it, Panama to put themselves in position to qualify. Wait, for where a World is that Cup. game? It's in Costa Rica. Costa Rica loses that game, they're done. Yes. It's a massive, massive game. The stakes of that game are uber high. For the U.S., the window sets up beautifully. They play El Salvador and Honduras at home, and then there's the big one. January 30th in Canada, where we will determine once and for all whether Sam State's goal is an American or a Canadian. We'll be determined (laughs) that day by who wins. (laughs) The fight for my national soul is on. <laughs> and then and then Mexico, they need results. They play at Jamaica, home against Costa Rica, and then they come back home again against Panama. I mean, the window for Panama is so, so... It's a tough it's window. It's a huge man. window to swing your results one way or the other. So they're at Costa Rica, home against... Jamaica. And then at Mexico. Yeah. 
I mean, we could be looking at a pretty defined top three after January and February. It, it's a, it's, I don't think it's likely, it's very unlikely that anyone qualifies for the World Cup. Like, very, very unlikely that anyone can qualify for the World Cup in January. But yeah, we should have a good idea of what the results maybe, are going to be needed in March. Maybe after the first game in March, we'll see some qualifications booked yeah. for Qatar. I'm hoping um, that it stays alive long enough that USA-Mexico at the Azteca is like a winner winner in, loser has <sighs> to go to the last game and like get a result. Man, I mean, that's the second to last match for both teams. Can you imagine? If if like that match had a ton of stakes on it, we know it's going to be at least going into the first game with stakes. So I mean, there's a real possibility that that game at the Azteca is gonna it's gonna matter, man. Yeah. It, either way, it's setting up to be a really fantastic end to the inaugural edition of the Ocho. Uh, and I I don't know. I'm very excited for it. We have a hard time watching other matches on match nights that aren't U.S. games because mostly they're going on at the same time and we're at the stadium late and we're working and all of these things. So it was a real treat for us to get to watch some of that Canada-Mexico game tonight. Um, and, and, Paul, I hope that the times, you know, sort of the kickoff times, they sort of match up again in the future so that we can watch some more of those <laughs> because this is like this is coming down to it and it's getting really fun. Yeah, I mean, and Sam, since I'm not going to be around until we get to January, I'm going to miss the announcements of where the games are being held. John Herdman today in his post-game press conference essentially said, look, we have to look at the travel. We can't make this a tour of the country. Um, In other words, going to Vancouver when you have two games in Central America doesn't make any sense. It's an eight-hour flight from those Central American nations to Vancouver, which means it's likely to be in Toronto or somewhere in that area. Um, that changes things for the U.S. If the game had been in Vancouver, the U.S. was probably looking at a game in Northern California, maybe even a game in Portland. You know, so they, they didn't have a lot of options because you can't play El Salvador in, in L.A. and you know probably can't play them anywhere within driving distance. So it's really intriguing to me to see where the U.S. ends up playing these these two crucial home qualifiers against El Salvador and Honduras, both of whom have huge communities in the Washington D.C. area where I grew up. So you got to kind of avoid D.C. and, and the the cities within driving distance to D.C. If you don't want – if you want the same home field advantage that the U.S. has indicated that they prefer and understandably so. So in my mind, Orlando, Miami, Atlanta maybe, Charlotte. I mean it's – I'm interested to see where it ends up. Atlanta will be tough for turf I think because uh, it's hard for those those teams. Any NFL stadium, it's hard to book out. When the playoffs could could be going on, although if you're looking at Atlanta and and Charlotte, you know, I think we can safely say the Falcons and the Panthers aren't going to be making those deep runs, so we can probably go ahead and lock those in. But I would have a hard time believing it'll happen in Atlanta on turf. Uh, man, how come? Let's. What would be the USA's Edmonton? Well, my thing is like, yeah, do you want to play those games south, or do you prefer to pull those countries? El Salvador and Honduras and say, okay, we're going to play Honduras in St. Paul. No, I mean, it would be, you know, Chicago Anchorage. I mean, trying to play at Soldier Field or Toyota Park. Is it Toyota no, Park? It's not Toyota Park anymore. Stubhubs. No, it's not. You don't do that if you're the U.S. because you're a better team than those teams. And bad weather is a good equalizer for a worse team. I think Orlando so you, is You want to play in good atmosphere. conditions if you're the U.S. It's a great atmosphere. I agree. Tough crowd to play against. Yeah, they they it's destroyed Panama there for nothing in the last cycle yeah. before going to Trinidad. <laughs> it's your favorite place in the world. 
it, you know, it, I know the restaurants we go to if we go there. <laughs> so that's always that's what a, really matters. That's always a bonus. That's what really matters. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Well, on that end, can you tell that we're fading, folks? It's been a long, it's been a long night. It's been a long window. Thank you for sticking through it with us. Hope you enjoyed the show. We've been a little all over the place this evening. Weird things happen in Jamaica, but but sincere thank you for listening, Paul. Do you want to say uh? Do you want to like sign off here? Yeah, for a couple I guess months? I probably should do the sign off since I'm leaving for the rest of the year. No, as always, appreciate the people who listen to the show. I I just want to say, you know, I was writing today about how tough it is for these young players that they don't get kind of the normal World Cup qualifying experience because of COVID protocol. It's been a real thrill for me through three windows to have these experiences. Um, to go to places like Jamaica and Honduras, um, Panama, to to make the friends that we've made, Kelly and Donnie and everyone else in the crew. Um, it's been a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying it. I look forward to coming back for uh, for the January window. But until then, I will be pushing strollers, making bottles, and uh, <laughs> probably calling Sam more often than I should. <laughs> definitely calling me more often than you should um but yeah to echo what paul said this is a really cool experience and we are very grateful that people like you listen to our show and read our work and allow us to do this um so thank you from the bottom of our hearts this has been allocation disorder until next time i'm sam he's paul As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.